Mexic Clinical Pills. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Mexi Clinical Pills. My name is Kathy and I'm here with final year student Mayu to talk about potassium imbalance. So why don't we start off with some fun facts about normal potassium physiology? Mm. Well, Kathy, why don't we start with a question? Can you tell me what you think is the most abundant cation in the body? Uh, is it sodium? Good guess. And I guess that's the answer that most people would give because as we know, sodium is really abundant. We know that it has high concentrations when we look at our blood tests. The most abundant cation is actually potassium. The thing is that only 2% is extracellular, which means 98% is inside the cell, and so it doesn't get picked up on those blood tests. Low serum potassium in particular is also reported to be the most common electrolyte abnormality in hospitalised patients, which makes it something really important to think about. Right, definitely, yeah. So what is the definition then of a normal potassium level? Great question. A normal potassium is tightly regulated between 3.5 and 5 millimoles per litre. And this persists even though people can have some pretty varying dietary intakes. Now, hypokalemia is defined as having a potassium of less than 3.5. And when it's at this level, we call it mild hypokalemia. Once it starts to drop below 3, we tend to call it moderate. And when it's less than 2.5, we call it severe. And the symptoms that go with hypokalemia tend to correlate with the level that you have. Now, Kathy, why don't you tell us a bit about how potassium is regulated in the body? Yeah, so the biggest player in regulating our potassium levels are actually our kidneys. So our kidneys excrete 90% of our potassium. Obviously, this is something we have to remember when we see patients then who experience acute or chronic renal failure. In terms of excretion via the gut, only 5 to 10% of our potassium is excreted that way. Though when a patient has end-stage renal failure, this can increase up to 25% to compensate. However, something else to remember with our potassium concentration is that it can be affected by the metabolic status of the patient as well. So this is just a big um, oversimplification of the process. But in summary, when a patient is acidotic, they have too much hydrogen. So in order to compensate for this, potassium shifts out of the cell in exchange for the hydrogen. This means that we get potassium retention caused by the hydrogen-potassium antiporter in our distal convoluted tubules. In alkalosis, this movement is reversed. So potassium shifts into the cells instead. So now that we've got a bit of an understanding of the normal physiology of potassium and what we would expect their normal levels to be, what are some of the ways we can approach or think about the causes of a low potassium? Uh, well, it come, when it comes to identifying causes of a low potassium, I think it's probably helpful to have a framework. And so you can think about low potassium in terms of having an increased potassium loss or wastage, a transcellular shift, decrease intake or as well as how it relates to magnesium so let's start with a, a an increased potassium loss this can happen in a few ways and some of the more common include the medications that we give so diuretics in particular loop diuretics like fruzamide that are potassium wasting these can cause hypokalemia as can steroids 
and overuse of laxatives. Another really important category are GI losses. So someone who has diarrhea or vomiting, or less commonly, losses via an ileostomy or intestinal fistula. Renal tubular disorders can also cause potassium wastage, as can adrenal disorders. So things like hyperaldosteronism, or Conn syndrome, or Cushing syndrome. Next, we have transcellular shift. So that's the movement of potassium across the cellular membrane. And things like insulin. Insulin is really important in pushing potassium into the cell, as is salbutamol. And so giving these medications, or giving them to excess, can cause hypokalemia. As Kathy was telling us before, having an, alkalos an alkalosis can also push potassium, potassium into the cell. Next, dietary intake is something to think about as well. So when someone has a potassium intake of less than one gram per day, that's kind of when we tend to think that this might cause uh, potassium derangement. And finally, magnesium depletion. Someone who has magnesium depletion um, will also have increased potassium loss through the kidneys, and so it's important to, to investigate that as another potential cause. Yeah, so that's a really good way of approaching the causes of hypokalemia. So if we do have a patient with low potassium, what are some of the signs or symptoms we might see? Yeah, well, as I said before, um, we can talk about hypokalemia in terms of mild, moderate, and severe disease, and the symptoms tend to increase with severity. So someone with mild hypokalemia might not actually have any symptoms at all. But as the potassium level falls further, the nerves and muscles are typically the first to be affected. And this person might experience fatigue, weakness, leg cramps, and constipation. In more severe cases, a patient might undergo rhabdomyolysis or ascending paralysis, which might lead to respiratory difficulties. It's worth noting that the probability of these symptoms actually increase when the patient has pre-existing heart disease. So that's things like ischemia, heart failure, and left ventricular hypertrophy, which means that these patients can get more severe symptoms even at a lower level. Uh, it's also worth noting that hypokalemia tends to come on more quickly in these patients in comparison to other patients. Right, so how would we investigate these patients? So when it comes to hypokalemia, the heart is the most important thing, and so we should order an ECG. Now, in mild hypokalemia, the ECG is probably going to be normal. But as it gets worse, you might see a few things. So you might see a peaked P wave and a flat T wave. I like to think that there's a tug of war between the P and T waves, and in hypokalemia, the P wave wins. So that's why you get that peaked P and flat T, uh, whereas you might get the opposite in hypokalemia. Other things that might happen, you might get a long PR interval, you might get ST depression, and you might also get a prominent U wave. A U wave is not a normal feature of an ECG, and what it tends to be is a, uh, a larger second T wave. So if you imagine you have that shallow T wave, and then you have another wave that comes right after it that's bigger, and that's your prominent U wave. Now, as I said, the heart is the most important, and that's what we need to think about when we think about complications, um, and th that being arrhythmia. So, Kathy, what kind of arrhythmias would you expect in someone with hypokalemia? Well, I believe you see some arrhythmias with their ventricular beats. Is that right? That is right. Now, in reality, hypokalemia can actually cause any arrhythmia, um, 
But the ones that we're most worried about are the ventricular ones, so things like VF, VT, and torsades. Now, I should say that arrhythmia is usually only a complication of severe hypokalemia, um, but that might come on in less severe disease if the patient is on digoxin. It's also worth noting that having a deranged potassium can interfere with the effect of the patient's own anti-arrhythmic medication, which might make them less effective. Um, so the reason that hypokalemia causes arrhythmia is that it messes with the depolarization, repolarization in the heart. And the worst of that is VF, VT and torsades. Uh, and so it's worth noting that in these patients, electrical or chemical cardioversion, which is what you might want to do, might not work until you have corrected the potassium level. So that's something that's really important to think about. Yeah, so we definitely don't want our patients to get to that stage. So how would we manage that hypokalemia? Uh, again, the heart is the most important thing. And so this person should have an ECG. Now, we should also try and identify a cause of hypokalemia and fix that if we can. We should also get nephrology involved if this person's in renal failure. And the reason we'd want to do that is because when we're correcting the potassium level of someone with renal disease, they are at increased risk of then going the other way and having a hyperkalemia. When we replace potassium, we like to go oral if we can, and we, we like to replace gradually. We should also give this with fluid or meals, and the reason being that oral potassium tends to cause GI upset, which is not just uncomfortable for the patient, but if they're throwing up their potassium, then it's not going to work either. So general wisdom is to give 40 millimoles over four to six hours, and our options are chlorvescent, which is a quick-release form of oral potassium, and that comes in 14 millimole preparations, or slocate, which is a slower release and comes in 8 millimole preparations and tends to be a bit less effective. Now, if someone has nausea or vomiting or abdominal distress, that's a reason why you might want to go IV. Reason being, if they're going to throw up, then your potassium's not going to work, and so you need to get in in a different way. Other reasons why you might want to go IV is if this person has severe hypokalemia, so that's less than two and a half millimole per litre, or if they're symptomatic. People tend to use premix infusions, so that's something like potassium chloride in normal saline, and example preparations include 30 millimole in one litre or 10 millimole in 100 mil. The potassium is usually given at 10 to 20 millimole per hour with a maximum of 40 millimole per hour. When we give it, we should think about how we're giving it. We can give it via a central line, such as a central line or a pick line, or uh, we should give it via a large peripheral line. When we give it through a small line, we actually risk damage to the veins, which isn't going to be good. Finally, someone with severe hypokalemia or symptomatic hypokalemia should have cardiac monitoring just to make sure that nothing serious is going on. And just a bit of advice. Every 20 millimole that you give IV tends to increase the potassium by about 0.5 to 0.75. But of course, this will vary depending on the cause and any ongoing losses or the hydration status of the patient. Uh, so that's enough about hypokalemia. Kathy, why don't you tell us a bit about hyperkalemia? What is it and what are some causes of it? Yeah, so like you mentioned before, a normal potassium level is one between 3.5 and 5. So we start talking about hyperkalemia when the levels become a bit over 5.5. 5. 
So what are some of the causes of hyperkalemia? Well, I think we can break it up similar to the way we broke up hypokalemia. So increased potassium levels can be caused by decreased excretion of potassium, increased extracellular potassium, transmembrane shifts of potassium out of cells, or even dietary intake. So I just want to ask you, Mayu, how many bananas do you think is the safe limit of bananas to eat in a day? Mm, I think I'm going to say 25 bananas, Kathy. Yeah, so I don't know if you ever heard about this, but there was a bit of a rumour floating around on the internet that if you ate seven bananas, it would kill you. So if you're bananas without bananas, this is obviously a bad fact. However, I'm happy to confirm that that's actually not true. So where this rumour came from was the idea that if you look at the average amount of potassium in a banana, you can eat six and a half bananas to reach your daily um, average uh, recommended intake of potassium. However, if you wanted to reach levels of potassium that were high enough to kill you, you'd have to be eating upwards of 400 bananas a day, which as you can imagine, even if you were bananas about bananas, no one is eating that many bananas in one day. Mm. Well, that's reassuring to hear. Yeah, so that's the good thing is it's actually rare for a patient to get hyperkalemia from their diet. So let's look at some of the other causes then of hyperkalemia. So decreased excretion of potassium is mainly due to dysfunction of the renal system, which, as I mentioned before, is a big player in excreting potassium. So patients who have acute or chronic renal failure or patients who are taking renal medications such as diuretics are at increased risk of having high potassium levels. Uh, the next branch we might look at is the addition of extracellular potassium. So the most common cause of this is actually iatrogenic. So blood sampling often causes hemolysis, which is the most common cause of increased extracellular potassium. Other things which might cause this include cell death from burns, trauma, or rhabdomyolysis. Now, what about transmembrane shifts of potassium out of cells? Well, if you recall previously, we mentioned that acidosis can cause this. So acidosis would be one of the main causes of increased potassium. Other things can include medications such as digoxin in toxic levels. That sounds like a really good way to kind of sift through the causes. And what kind of symptoms or signs might you expect to see in someone who has high potassium? Yeah, so potassium is a very important electrolyte that plays a vital role in the normal function of our muscles and nerves. So it does affect many different systems in our body. For example, patients who have high potassium levels might experience some pins and needles in their hands and feet. They might experience weakness, flaccid paralysis, or areflexia as well. It can also impact their gastrointestinal system and cause symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or abdominal pain. However, the most important muscle of our body is the heart. Like we mentioned before in hypokalemia, the heart is really something we want to keep in mind because patient can, patients can experience ectopic beats and arrhythmias as well. That's a good thought. And so what kind of investigations might you look for? So as with hypokalemia, our most important investigation is an urgent ECG. So as with hypokalemia, hyperkalemia can often lead to signs on ECG, which you can spot. So these signs are often progressive. When your potassium level is about a 5.5 to a 6.5, the first sign you might see is peaked T waves. 
The next sign you might see with a bit of a higher potassium level of 6.5 to 7.5 is the flattening and then loss of the P wave. So that same tug of war that Mayu was talking about before, um, except this time you get the peaked T waves and the flattened P waves. The next sign you might then see is QRS widening, and this may eventually progress to arrhythmias which are life-threatening, such as ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation for potassium levels over 8. You would also do, of course, other baseline investigations such as your FBE, your UEC to check for renal function, BBGs to check for acidosis, as well as digoxin or other medication levels. And so how might you manage someone that has a high potassium level? So as we've mentioned so many times before, the first priority is making sure that the heart is okay. So the first thing we would do is resus if the patient needed it, as well as cardiac protection. So cardiac protection is given through calcium gluconate, which while it does not lower the potassium levels, it does narrow the QRS within minutes. So once we've given calcium gluconate, we can then focus on lowering the potassium levels. So the first way we could do this is by driving potassium back into the cells. So the drugs we may use to do this include insulin, nebulized salbutamol, or sodium bicarbonate if the patient is also acidotic. And you might recognize those drugs as things that might cause a hypokalemia that Mayu mentioned previously. So monitoring is key to make sure that we get this balance right. The other option we could do is promote potassium excretion. So this includes through the renal system and the GIT system. Through the renal system, we can give diuretics such as frusamide and potassium loss via GIT can be facilitated through calcium risonium. If these are still ineffective and the patient is still experiencing high potassium levels, we can then escalate to dialysis. I think that was a really good recap of what we can expect to do and see in hyperkalemia. It sounds like potassium balance is really essential for normal muscle function. And the most important muscle that we have is the heart. But unfortunately, potassium imbalances are very common. Kathy, do you want to give us a, a recap of the causes and risk factors for potassium derangement? Yeah, so the main thing to keep an eye out for when you get a new patient is do they have a dysfunction of their absorption or excretion systems? So patients who have problems with their kidneys, who might have a GIT or endocrine issues, patients who have diet issues, or patients who are on medications that might impact their potassium levels. Those are the things that we really want to look out for. But if we do get a patient who has potassium imbalance, what is the main thing that we really want to look after? Well, we've both said it so many times, but I'll say it again. The heart is the most important thing to think about when we talk about potassium derangement. And in particular, we're concerned about arrhythmias, VF and torsades being some of the worst. And so we should always order an ECG for these patients. Well, it looks like that's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today, Kathy. And to all of our listeners, we'll catch you guys next time. Mexic Clinical Pills